reading from Luke 20 and 21. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at feasts, who desire, devour widows' houses and for a pretext, pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. The word of the Lord. We are in the midst of a sermon series on the notion of stewardship, that we have been given resources by God, and to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ means that we think about deeply how we exercise those resources. And indeed, how we exercise those resources teaches us something about how we love Jesus and how we are thinking about following after him. And today we, uh, again, uh, similar to last week, but in other ways very different, we're thinking about money. Now, if you've been around Rockwell Prez for any substantial period of time, you know that I don't like talking about money. We perhaps talk about money once every three years at best. Now, having thought about that this week and really um, wrestled with some issues related to money, I, I think I owe you an apology. Because Jesus has a lot to say about money. And if I'm seeking to be a shepherd, that shepherds the, those who gather here in a way that's honoring to Jesus, then money should, I think, be important to our discussion as well. Right? Theologians have pointed out ad nauseum almost that Jesus, apart from speaking of himself in the kingdom, has more to say about money than any other issue. And for all the ways we like to talk about uh, physical intimacy, and Christians sometimes like to judge physical intimacy. Remember that Jesus has a great deal more to say about money than he does about those issues. Right? Makes us ask the question, perhaps, why do we not talk more about money? Sometimes I think that our biggest idolatries are the best hidden. Right? The elephant in our room that has somehow been disguised so that we can overlook it. Unquestionably, there are reasons that it's difficult to discuss money. One is that it's relative. Right? Relative in terms of you can always feel like you don't have enough. Right? All you have to do is hop in the car and drive to the next neighborhood up 
and suddenly the houses are nicer, the cars are more expensive, uh, the landscaping is better, uh, you like their windows, right? Whatever the case may be, you feel like you don't have enough. So it's relative in that capacity, but money we also consider to be very private. We don't like to necessarily disclose or talk about issues of our spending and how much we're making in various capacities. Jennifer's father was visiting uh, this week and told a funny story that kind of pointed this up. Uh, Jennifer's dad's name is Ken, and uh, for his career, he was a lawyer. And so early out of law school, he joined a law firm and was working there, and the lawyer said, well, listen, you're going to have to hire yourself a secretary. And he said, oh, okay, you know, uh, what should I pay her? And the partners said, well, ask around, find out the going rate, and then, you know, you can make the person an offer. So he did so, found the person he wanted to hire, put the package together and sat down with her. The other thing the partner said, though, before he executed his decision was to, um, they told him to communicate to the secretary, listen, don't talk about salary. Secretaries have been here different lengths of time, they're paid differently, and we don't want to create a lot of tension in the office. So Jennifer's dad, Ken, eventually selected the person, made the offer, and was saying, listen, you know, we would prefer that you don't discuss salary with the other secretaries. We don't want to create tension in the office. To which the person being hired apparently replied, don't worry at all, Mr. Ross. I'm as embarrassed as you are about this figure. Right? On both sides, right? There's an awkwardness. There's, oh, um, this is what I'm paying you. And, oh, we don't want it to be talked about. And the person being paid that feels awkward in some capacity. It, I think, though, in a large part, it's this very private notion of money uh, that helps, that is born out of our commitment to facilitate certain idolatries related to money. There's a, a relatively new book out called The Paradox of Generosity, Giving We Receive, Grasping We Lose, and I'll be drawing on that considerably today. It's by two uh, pretty heavy-hitting sociologists at Notre Dame. And although they have Christian backgrounds, they're lo really looking at generosity in America as a whole, not simply uh, in the context of the church. And what they do, uh, kind of the theme of the book, is to point out the, the very paradox that lies at the heart of generosity. Now, the paradox that lies at the heart of generosity is this, that you think you would lose something by giving it away, but you actually gain something. Uh, so, for example, when you give something, you're losing not only, say, the amount that you give, but you're also losing what you could have had as a result of that amount. So it feels, technically, logically, there's a double loss. And that might make us pull away from generosity. Right? But in fact, there's a huge return. Now, if that seemed abstract, imagine, you know, I knew you were in need. And I come to you and I say, okay, I'm going to give you $100. So now I've lost $100. And it was, say it was my intent to buy 70 fidget spinners with my $100. So I've lost not only the $100, but I've also lost this happiness that I thought I would derive from a collection of fidget spinners, right? I'm, I'm doubly out. And so we might be reluctant to engage generosity in that way. But uh, this study, which is rather expansive, notes that there's significant correlations between generosity and better physical health, better mental health, meaning less depression and anxiety, uh, three, improved happiness overall, and greater personal growth. 
In other words, if you're a generous person, in general, your life overall is going to be better. Now, we'll see later on in the course of the sermon that that's exactly what Jesus teaches us, right? But it is to say that there is a paradox. It, generosity sometimes feels like loss. It's actually going to be great gain, profound gain, if we understand it rightly. And so perhaps we might summarize the heart of thinking about money and stewardship with Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? That's where your heart is. I might ask it this way, do you love Jesus and his kingdom? And you would probably say, yes, absolutely. I'd say, okay, well, then where is your money? Is it invested in Jesus and his kingdom? Or we could ask it again a different way, which is to say, uh, where, where do you invest your money? That's the kingdom that you think will save you. Right? Realize if you're... If your treasure is not located in the kingdom of God, then neither is your heart. And if you aren't locating them there because you don't believe you'll actually have salvation there, you're going to choose another kingdom to invest your heart and your treasure in because that's where you believe that you'll find salvation. And so how do we learn to be generous and to really trust in the king and his kingdom so that we have the freedom to be generous? What I'd like to do is, as we focus primarily on the story of the poor widow, we're going to consider Jesus' distinction, first giving out of abundance and then giving out of poverty. And then we'll close with uh, all empires fall. We're going to consider giving out of abundance and then giving out of poverty. And in the end, all empires fall. What is this notion to give from abundance or out of abundance? As we look at the story of the poor widow, Jesus and the disciples are sitting on the sideline in the temple observing what's transpiring, and they're in the outer court. And in the outer court, there are 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles for free will offerings. As people come in and out of the temple, you would drop money into these receptacles, and that would go to underwrite the worship of the temple. Jesus notes that some rich people are coming in and giving, and he also notes that a poor woman comes and gives uh, just two small copper coins. Indeed, uh, small is not simply a description of their size. It's not a one-to-one -one factor, but if you were to, to try to equate the woman, the poor widow's gift in terms of today's dollars, she essentially drops a penny into the receptacle. Right? It is a profoundly small denomination of ancient money. Now, the reason that that is uh, surprising is that Jesus, in chapter 21, verse 3, will say this poor woman has put in more than all of them. So the woman, who, just to be clear, puts in a penny, is declared by Jesus to have put in more than all of the other people who are dropping money, including the ones that, have uh, that are rich, dropping amounts of money into these receptacles. How can that possibly be? A penny doesn't compare financially to the other gifts that are being given. It's not in this... Unless... Jesus is measuring not monetarily, not by a figure or a number, but by what the gift reveals about the giver. Unless Jesus is weighing the heart rather than the amount of money that is dropped. And this is what Jesus indicates when in uh, verse 4 he says, For they all contributed out of their abundance, speaking of the rich, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. The rich give out of their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. In fact, she gave all she had to live on, which 
I think our knee-jerk reaction to somebody of that nature would probably be to, to chastise them. Right? Is that res- would you call that responsible? How do we understand this notion of giving out of abundance? One Bible scholar used the analogy of balloons. So imagine that you have a balloon that is only slightly filled with air. Imagine you have a balloon that is filled to capacity with air, and you release the same small amount of air out of each. Well, what are you left with? In the one case, you're left with an empty balloon that's totally deflated. In the other case, you're left with a balloon that has hardly changed. It's essentially remained the same. And this is the difference between giving out of poverty and giving out of abundance. Giving out of poverty actually looks very different. It affects your life. It uh, requires sacrifice. But giving out of abundance is a way to give without actually having to change any aspect of your life. You can remain committed to the other kingdoms that you may be committed to while also pretending to be committed to the kingdom of God. And this, of course, is uh, the nature of the attack against the scribes that immediately precedes the story of the poor widow. Jesus says to the scribes, listen, your religion is pretense. You aren't really committed to following after me because your practices reveal that you're only interested in serving yourselves, even to the extent of consuming poor widows' houses. Your kingdom has nothing to do with mine, even though the scribes are giving faithfully. But before we can be too hard on the religious leaders, which is definitely a favorite pastime of Protestant Christianity, we might note that they're at least giving. Are we? Let's consider giving in the church. About 3%. It's actually 2.7, but in desperation, I round it up. About 3% of adult Americans give away 10% or more of their income. Right? Um, this is, uh, now remember, these are stats that are describing the plummeting. Uh, generosity in America is not simply a church problem, it's an American problem. We as a culture are becoming profoundly less generous, right? And this is now reflected Right, indeed, in the church as well. So uh, 3%, only 3% are giving away 10% of their income. 41.3% of Americans give away less than 2% of their income, and 44.8% do not give away $1 by their own admission. Right? So if you take those two numbers, if you say, what is the percentage of America? Right, great, 3% are, tie- are giving away 10%. If you're one of those 3%, kudos to you. You're in a gross minority of the country. And I applaud that you, that you labor at that faithfulness. If we lump the next two categories, the result is that 85% of the country gives away less than 2% of their income. If we rounded out the whole picture, 9% give away between 2 and 4.9%. 3.1% give away between 5 and 9.9% of their income. And this is essentially correlates to uh, giving within the church as well. Right? You know what pastors talk about these days when they get together? Do I need to learn a vocation that will enable me to stay in ministry 20 years from now? Right? If you charted the giving in church over the last 50 years, it's a, it's a, a downhill ski run. We don't necessarily expect that there will be that ability. And you can always, you can be very fooled by driving around and seeing some great big church that has deep pockets, 
right? The lowest estimates hold that one church closes its doors every day in America. That's the lowest estimate, right? And they go upwards to 4,000 per year, right? If you go to, say, the Northwest or the Northeast and you admire beautiful church buildings that once were thriving households of worship to God, you know what they are now? They're condos or restaurants. It's become pretty cool to live in an old church. This is the reality, monetarily, that we as a country are much less generous, but we as a church are much less generous. So we should perhaps be hesitant to critique the scribes and start to worry about the massive telephone pole-sized log in our own eye. Why have we become so ungenerous? Why are we so stingy? Well, the book chronicles a couple of different examples in terms of considering this. One, and they give a, a they choose a particular couple in both in both instances that kind of represent one of the reasons that we have become less generous. And the first couple that they highlight, their names I'm sure have been changed, are Doug and Michelle Arnold. They live in a middle class suburb in uh, South Carolina. Their kids go to private school. And they essentially view life as something to be consumed. If you ask them, what is the purpose of life and what is happiness? Say, well, you work hard and enjoy everything that you possibly can. And so they're they're on this unending treadmill of acquiring more and more. Now they want a pool in their yard. And after the pool, they want a beach house. They've got it all set out, the course that they're going to run and what they're going to gain. The result is they're always living beyond their means. They live in the midst of massive stress. Michelle suffers from ulcers that are the result of stress because they're never making ends meet and always feel short of having what they want. What's also interesting about the Arnolds is they aren't interested in helping anyone. You know, we're speaking of this lack of generosity. They say, listen, we don't really want to be bothered. If someone needs something, they have the tendency to assume that they have made bad decisions or have not worked very hard And so they don't want to be bothered. Now, I see this more and more. What's really interesting about the Arnolds is they created a code. And they say, we don't expect help from anyone. Right? Therefore, we don't have to offer help to anyone. And so they've been through some tough seasons. And they've taken on multiple jobs. And they've not asked for help from anyone. But they also acknowledge that they have no significant relationships, live in a degree of loneliness. And you know what? When that, when that season of real need comes, there's nobody there. They've been through seasons of some need, but not desperate need. But this is the way they prefer to live. Don't bother us. We won't bother you. And we're just going to consume as much as we possibly can. Absolutely a common narrative, right, in the area of the country that we live. The other couple the book considers is... Uh, is, uh, is considering a lack of generosity that is seen more amongst poorer populations. They consider Danny and Sylvia Ramirez, who wor- live and work in a Latino workhorse suburb east of San Diego. And they've spent their entire life trying to become financially stable, only to fall short time and time again. They live in a culture of poverty, and the, the deck is stacked against them in terms of getting ahead to the point at which they've arrived at a, kind of a place of cynicism. What they say is we're not going to be, uh, we don't really believe that money will change anything. They've seen money thrown at, 
at, at situations in their neighborhood where there's addiction or children need, being neglected. And even once they throw money at it, something else will happen that will make the situation even worse. And so they feel like there's a pointlessness to being generous because nothing will ever change. So if we were to summarize those two reasons for lack of generosity, right? The Arnolds, I want what I want and I don't want people to expect anything of me. And the Ramirez is, oh, there is no point. It will not make a difference. Now, these two groups, right, which we may sympathize to, uh, with, to varying degrees, right, they may still get out of their abundance if they're religious, right, they want to check that box, but they, for the most part, they're not generous at all and aren't interested in being generous. They don't think it's required of them, they don't think it changes anything, and it's these kinds of spirits that are making the American population remarkably ungenerous. To this, the authors say, don't underestimate the negative impact of a lack of generosity. They write, the absence of generous practices has the capacity to shape people negatively, just as much as the presence of generosity affects them positively. They go on to say, we will see that ungenerous Americans view themselves as holding basins, collecting more and more resources without realizing that their concave lifestyles drain and hollow out whatever health, vivacity, and happiness they might otherwise have. Giving out of abundance, which means not really allowing your life to be changed at all, not even really believing in generosity. If you're just giving, you're giving uh, because it's kind of a safety latch in case you want to pretend at a certain form of religiosity. How is it different and what does it mean to give out of your poverty? Well, for this, we need to understand what the New Testament standard of giving is. If someone were to come up and ask you, well, you know, as a Christian, what do you believe in terms of what you give? How would you define your approach to money? Some Christians say the tithe, and I understand that. It's the Old Testament standard of giving 10% of one's possessions. Now, in the Old Testament, giving was much bigger than that. There were lots of levels of different ways in which you would have to expend income on behalf of the temple or the sacrificial system. But the tithe was the basic notion that 10% of anything that you owned went to the Lord because you understood that everything was a gift from Him. Now, that isn't carried over in any definitive way in the New Testament. It's not part of the Mosaic law that we believe is ongoing in any fashion, but has been fulfilled in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that the New Testament doesn't have a lot to say about giving. It just means it kind of changes the bar. It changes the approach from meeting a certain financial standard, a certain number, to saying it has a lot more to do with your heart. In this fashion, some, you know, some people come to me sometimes and say, I, I keep laboring and laboring. We have this debt. We are not making very much money. I feel like I'm living in sin, not giving 10%. Friend, you are not. This isn't, there isn't some bar by which you're failing if you're not making 10%. And you may be in a situation where that's just not realistic for you. There are others of you who uh, make a significant amount of money. And you think, oh, I am sure to hit 10% every, every week or every month. Right? Pretty easy bar for you. 
the balloon doesn't lose much of its contour when you let a little air out of a lot of air. Right? For those of you who are making significant amounts of money and don't have any uh, special circumstance going on, why aren't you giving 15 or 20 or 25% of your income? Right? Where is it going? What kingdom are you choosing to invest in? Let's look at three passages briefly from the New Testament to try to get a notion of what we, how we should think about giving from a New Testament perspective. The first we've mentioned is Matthew 6, 21 through 23, where Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, the evil eye? It's a Jewish notion. And it's what the, this passage is drawing upon. It's a Jewish notion in the sense that the eye was considered the lamp to the body. If your eye is focused upon something that is evil or is focused upon something in greed, then it fills your body with darkness. Your heart turns toward that greed. But if your light is focused on something that is worthwhile and God-honoring and beautiful and good, that fills your body, your heart, with light. Right? And as your eye goes, whatever your eye devours, lusts after, that is what your heart will go after, is the idea. And so Jesus says, right, where are your eyes fixed? Where's your treasure? That's where your heart will be also. We could also look at 2 Corinthians 8, 7, and 9. It's a place where Paul has been commending the Macedonian church for their giving to the poor in Jerusalem where there's a famine. The Macedonians, bravo, you've, done, you've given out of your poverty. Now, he's using this as an example to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, to do the same thing. And he writes, But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also, giving to the poor. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor." so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He who for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Would you dare to become poor, so that others might be rich? And in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul writes, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Right? It's not a monetary bar, but it is a condition of faithfulness and discipleship not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Are you cheerful in your giving? Do you delight to give it away? If we were to describe the New Testament approach to giving, right, it would be one that calls for joyful and sacrificial giving. Giving that requires us to give up something, right, to to tell the story of Jesus' life, who gives up everything, he becomes poor that we might become rich, that we would be sacrificial and generous so that the church and its work and the kingdom of God might be funded by those gifts. And don't forget the health that comes with that, right? This book, in kind of a, a backdoor way, approaching generosity in America at large, says, listen, you're going to have better health, better mental health, better relationships, and a more productive life if you're characterized by generosity. That's what all the data shows. Right? Again, I told you before, that's what Jesus says. 
where your eye is focused, right? If it's focused on something that is light, it allows light into your heart. And indeed, right, what they're describing in a loose-handed way is, is within the church and in relationship to Christ, growth and holiness as a result of generosity. Well, why does this make sense for you and what does it mean particularly for you? In this last part, we need to think of it in light of the reality that all empires fall. Right? This is where Luke, interestingly, uh, positions Jesus' charge or chastisement against the scribes, the story of the poor widow, and then his prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. If you look at 21.6, he says, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is prophesying that the temple is going to be destroyed, and that will happen in 70 A.D. And the destruction of the temple is the destruction of Israel. It's the end of Israel as an empire. And scripture tells us that all empires of which Jesus is not the king will come crashing down. So if you choose to invest in a kingdom that is not led by King Jesus, right, you might as well be, be buying stock in Enron. Right? Your decision is just as foolish and you will be left just as empty-handed and you will have just as much regret. Where is your treasure? All of the empires of the earth will fade away, but what if we became a truly, a truly generous people? What if we began to give sacrificial, sacrificially and joyfully? What, what could we dream of? Well, here are how some of the numbers have been worked out. Now, this takes uh, 10% as an average. And again, I'm not advocating that there's some law that says that you need to, to give 10%. Although I think that's a pretty decent standard for someone who doesn't have extenuating circumstances because you have to sacrifice something. You're probably going to have to give up something out of your life to give faithfully 10% out of your income. But so let's just imagine for a moment that if you take all people giving 25%, people giving 2%, and it averaged out to 10% in the church, this is what would happen. There would be, additionally to giving today, $165 billion in funds. How might we spend that? $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places where 1 billion people live on less than $1 per day. $1 billion could fully fund all overseas missions work. And that would leave us with 100 to $110 billion which we would have to decide how to allocate for additional ministry expense. Isn't that crazy? That's what the church could accomplish if we were giving sacrificially and joyfully. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you in particular? I think if you truly want to follow Jesus in a way that is generous and in a way that communicates to you, says, my treasure is Jesus and his kingdom, and I don't want it to be located elsewhere. It means that you're going to have to sit down and pray and make conscious decisions about what you're going to say no to. In other words, I'm going to choose to give up something so that I have more resources to allocate towards Jesus and his kingdom. And it's at that point, right, that you communicate to your own heart, yeah, I really do believe this. My faith is being located here. 
and it will allow your, your eye right, to be gazing upon something that allows light to be cast into your whole body and to chase away the darkness that is there. The generosity that the New Testament invites us to is not simply some way to affirm our righteousness by giving away our money. It is a way for us to grow in holiness and to come alive by setting aside our addictions and our investments in earthly kingdoms. It is an invitation to life. Where is your treasure? Where your treasure is is where your heart is. I would remind you that Jesus has loved you so much that he became poor that you might become rich. What joy would you experience if you participated in that kingdom program? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you because you were wealthy beyond all standards and surrendered everything so that we might become rich. We give you thanks that you were willing to take on poverty for that purpose. We pray that you would forgive us for the ways in which our treasure exists in wrong kingdoms. Pray that you would forgive us because that tells us that our hearts also reside in wrong kingdoms. Would you wake us up and as you nourish us, uh, nourish us, would you call us back and would you encourage us by your spirits to be generous as you have been generous, uh, to experience the joy of sanctification in that way and also to give that gift as a model to the children that we raise that they too might be generous. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.